I think what I want to do is make companionable music that is, you know, music that is a good partner to whatever it is that a listener is going through or and even if what they're going through is just wanting to have a nice walk or a nice day at work. Hello, sound seekers. Welcome back to Sound for Thought, a podcast about why people make music. Produced by Redefining Records, and I am your host, Andrew Schultz. You are in for a sonic treat today. This episode features the incredibly talented and nice and funny Brooklyn-based ambient artist Corntooth, whose new record, Letters to My Robot Son, came out this past November. We discuss that album plus his two other records in depth during the interview. We also chat about how he got started with songwriting, both in general and also with ambient music specifically. We discuss some of his influences, and of course, most importantly, we talk about why Corntooth makes music. You can find all of Corntooth's music on Spotify, Apple Music, etc., any of the streaming platforms. Uh, You can follow him on social media at Corntooth, And I should specify, Corntooth is spelled C-O-R-N-T-U-T-H. But if you're listening to this on your phone or your device, then you can see the name uh, if you just look down at your screen. So go check him out. Better yet, if you enjoy his music, uh, go purchase it on Bandcamp. You can keep up with this podcast, Sound for Thought, on Spotify, Apple Podcast any streaming platform that has podcasts on it and follow our whole team at redefining records on instagram to hear about new episodes of this show and other shows plus just generally cool music discovery based content excited to announce that next week uh, our sister podcast band spears and buzzwords with john pagliasotti of Delta Dagger is returning with new episodes as well. And big announcement. We're launching another new Redefining Records podcast in just a couple of weeks. It's called Trust the Process with Jake Marino, who is a production mixing and mastering whiz as well as being a great musician and a dear friend of mine every episode he'll be working with a guest breaking down the journey of an idea becoming a fully fledged song whether that be just an idea for a song or an artist bringing him a rough demo he'll walk you through the process of bringing it up to being release ready and the first episode features me Yours truly, working on the Christmas song I released over the holidays under the Magic Fingers project called This Sunny Christmas, and it would have been a mess if I didn't have Jake's help. So I highly recommend you check out the podcast when it comes out in a couple of weeks, and you're really going to enjoy it, especially if you're a songwriter yourself or if you're interested in learning more about the technical side of music production. 
All right, that's all I have to say for the intro. Stay safe, be kind, and keep making cool shit. Enjoy the show. This is E004 by Corntooth from his latest record, Letters to My Robot Son, on Sound for Thought. First question, some hard-hitting journalism. How's your day going so far? <laughs> so far, it's it's been a good day. It's I'm in New York. It was kind of rainy and gloomy, but it was a good day to be inside doing some writing stuff. Yeah. You know, it's rainy and gloomy where I'm at, too. I'm in eastern Washington. Okay. is it all, It's often rainy and gloomy there, right? Yeah. At least... At least... Nine out of 12 months, it feels like. Pretty pretty rainy and gloomy. Really lovely. I used to be in Seattle for a couple of years, and then I moved to eastern Washington, a town called Walla Walla. So hmm. I'm still new. It's, it's a little different climate than Seattle, 
but it's got some similarities. And what brought you out to Walla Walla? Uh, my fiance is a speech therapist, and she did grad school in Seattle, and then got a job opportunity out here. Cool. So, and I work from home, so I just followed her out here and went along with the adventure. That sounds awesome. That sounds really cool. I, as a person who is like too much in the city, I, you know, as you can hear probably from my tracks, um, my tracks meaning my vocal track right now, because there's a lot of noise on the street where I live. I very much envy that kind of like living a little out there. Yeah. I like, I like the ambiance of the, uh, city soundscape in the background. It's good. It's, it's yeah. I live across from a grocery store and they get a lot of deliveries kind of block up the traffic and then there's a lot of honking and such. Right. How long have you been living in New York? Um, about 10 years. It'll be 10 years this October. Wow. And where did you come from prior? I'd been living in Massachusetts for my whole life up until then. I spent some time in Nashville, but for the most part living in Mass and then living in New York. Okay. That's a bit of a, a curveball. What's what happened in Nashville? I I do I do writing stuff outside a lot of nonfiction stuff outside my music. And so I wanted to I was making music at the time. I had won some money from a thing I'd written and I wanted to move to Nashville with my bandmate for uh, a folk rock band we were in. And so moved there for about four months and spent a lot of time writing songs and meeting people and recording a lot. And then he needed a job. And so wound up getting a job in New York and then moving here from there. And then, you know, keeping that that project and, and my own personal music going, which eventually became Corntooth. But yeah, that was that was the trajectory. Cool. What is that other project you said it's still going? We're sort of it's like a it's a group of friends. We haven't played much in a long in a little while sure but yeah it's just like a, a sort of indie americana folk rock band um and i played guitar and keys in it cool one of my questions for you today one of the topics i wanted to know about was how you got into ambient music because definitely a niche for most people it's it's something i've only like dipped my toes into as a listener um so i'm not like an expert on the genre at large but I was curious how you got into it, if you don't mind. You know, it doesn't have to be super specific, but but what kind of drew you to the genre? Well, I, I think there's like there's a few answers. When I was a kid, my parents really loved this record, Autumn by George Winston. He's a piano player from the 80s who whose albums were really big successes for this ambient ish new 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 age is a better term for it this this new okay. age label um windham hill and the sort of like these glacial piano voicings lots of roots fifths and octaves and just this like sort of icy space in the way that he plays and extremely evocative of the seasons I think he's got like an album called December 2. So like programmatic in that way, like it's right. music that's describing something. But we used to listen to this record all the time in my family. And I, since I was really little, always played music. And so did my brother and we'd play together a lot. And I think I was just drawn to styles of music that let the sound of the instrument 
dominate in a way that like left a lot of space for the character of whatever the musical, the main musical element of a piece was. And I never, I would sort of do ambient type things for myself, but I didn't really know that it was a thing you could do musically. Yeah. And so I spent a lot of time working on songwriting, like how you structure a traditional song. Like where I, someone in high school, when I was a freshman, the senior I looked up to was like, if you're going to be a songwriter, you got to, every good songwriter was a poet first. Uh, so then I spent like three years writing poetry before I like started writing songs again. And I like I spent a lot of time just trying to really crack how you structure and, and craft a song. And a lot of my songwriting was built around loop pedals. So I, I would do a lot with loop pedals and kind of like one of the characteristic problems for me was I would find a loop in a sort of musical zone that I really wanted to live in and develop slowly. But I always felt like nobody would deal with as much repetition as I wanted to have. I would be happy endlessly looping something. Yeah. And often my demos would be that. And then I would be like, okay, but it's got to, you know, it loops four times and then it has like the B section and then the A section and then the B and then the C. And I was constantly like finding parts that I loved and then tacking things onto them to create movement. And I think that's a really useful exercise. I think that's the type of music that is like, essential a lot of my favorite music works that way but it wasn't until the pandemic that um, and i'm sorry this is a long answer but no it's a podcast that's what yeah, that's what we're right, here for what the forms for yeah i guess there was like I, it wasn't until the pandemic that I, I had started listening to ambient music again right and i actually think my this is i kind of embarrassed to admit this but the the vampire weekend record uh father of the bride yeah um, has a song 2021 that I really love. 2021, will you think about me? I could wait a year, but I shouldn't wait three. And it samples a Harumi Hosono song that I think is was actually originally created for Muji. Um, it was sort of like an ambient piece that was made for Muji, uh, Muji stores, and it would like play as people shopped. Okay, And I was like, well, this 2021 song is great, but what's really great is the song that they're sampling from. Right. And that kind of led me into a lot of Japanese ambient music. I'd always been a Brian Eno fan because I used to be a U2 fan. Um, I mean, I still am, but that was how I discovered his stuff. And like all of a sudden, I started listening to a lot more ambient. And then over the pandemic, a, a friend of mine who owned a synthesizer shop whose house I used to record in had to move across the country and he was getting rid of a lot of stuff and he was like i know you always loved my yamaha dx7 yeah i'll give it to you for cheap and i didn't have anything else going on i had a bit of extra cash because it was the pandemic and so mm -hmm. i bought it from him and then i needed something to do with it and i wasn't making music with a band because no one was around and so i started making ambient stuff very cool yeah i feel like brian eno's sort of the a good sort of gateway mm -hmm. into ambient for a lot of people, at least uh, as a more recognizable name and, and something you can stumble across without looking for it because he's connected to so many other projects, like you mentioned with U2 or totally. whatever, Talking Heads. or Yeah, he was always attached to a lot of the things that I love best. And it took a while yeah. for me to you know discover discrete music or like Thursday afternoon, these ambient pieces that I totally love. Yeah. Um, and then through him to discover Harold Budd, because he worked with Harold Budd on a lot of stuff. And it's just kind of, he is, like you said, a gateway. 
so the parallel tracks of like him for a lot of Western ambient stuff, and then the Harumi Hasono for a lot of Japanese ambient stuff was really helpful for me. Yeah. You know, I was just listening to an interview with um, Fred again. Uh, he's like a really popular sort of more dance music producer um, who's getting really popular right now, um, at mm. least in the dance genre, a little more upbeat. By no means ambient, but apparently he's working with Brian Eno now. It's just another example of how far that guy's reach is. But that's cool. I'm always curious about, you mentioned how you and your siblings were playing music from like a super young age. That's always sort of the origin story of, of how people become musicians is a big interest of mine. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like, you know, your parents were exposing you to a lot of music where were they musicians themselves? My mom is a really great pianist. Um, she's not like a professional pianist, but she's a really amazing pianist. And my dad loves music and taught us a lot about like 1960s rock, especially this big yeah. sort of Woodstock guy. You know, he'd like sing us the who when we were kids and he or like play us the doors and a lot of Rolling Stones stuff. I think like something that they did that was pretty I don't know how unique it is, but they were really good about building rituals around certain music. Like we would listen to the George Winston album when we were having dinner on Sundays and we listened to the like Rolling Stones, no security live album when we were like when we were driving to Vermont in the winter. that association of certain pieces of music with certain times and places is also a thing that I think is really characteristic of ambient music. Yeah. And that's something that they, I think just sort of subconsciously did. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. I totally agree with your point there. So how is your, relationship with your parents and your family now in terms of your musical career i know you said you you do other things on the side you're a writer as well are they supportive of music as like you know a career or what's well, what's the take there i think one is one of the reasons that i sort of keep my the rest of my life separate from my music life is because I think it's really hard to make a full-time life out of music Mm -hmm. and to make a full career out of it uh, without making like creative compromises or doing things that limit the joy that you get from making music. And I think it's always been a goal of mine to put myself in a position not where all I do is music, but where I can make exactly the kind of music I want to make and not have to worry about if it's going to sustain me in a certain way. Yeah. And so that's why I have this sort of life arrangement. I think if I wanted to make music full-time, my parents would be fine with it. They really support my music, and they always have, and they always, you know, like, got us instruments and got us lessons. And But on this, at the same time, I think they're probably a little relieved that it's not what I want to, you know, make the center of my career. Right. But I guess I just something that I believe about art is that it's not it's not an all the time thing and that you shouldn't force it to be an all the time thing. 
and that the way we arrange our careers now is such that anything that you're doing as your career needs to be your focus 100% of the time. And it doesn't allow for the kind of creative gestation or seasonality that I at least experience with making music. And I know some people are totally different than that, but for me, it's it's important to let things move at the pace of their own creativity. And that's what this arrangement has sort of done for me. Yeah. I'm with you. I, I feel the same way. Do you make music too? I do, yeah. And it's probably even more of a side thing for me. What's your what's your music called? My artist's name is Magic Fingers. I'm going to look it up. And there's a weird little uh, Spanish tilde in the middle because I want it to be weird. Cool. <laughs> I support that. It's it's very much just a hobby side project of experimentation and um, just messing around with sounds and instruments and stuff. And I totally agree with everything you said. And I think much like I'm also interested in I'm not a comedian, but I love stand up comedy and like watching and listening to comedy. And it kind of relates to the comedic process as well, where I feel like life informs the art. Mm -hmm. Like. You can't be funny if all of your jokes are about telling jokes and about being a comedian, but like you have to go live life to yeah, make exactly. stories. And I think music's the same way. It's like if you're just making, writing songs 24 seven, like what are you going to be writing about or what are the moods of your sounds going to be like if that's the case? So, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, some people totally figure out a way to make it work. It's just, I think it would, I think figuring out how to make that work for me would entail sacrifices to the amount of fun I have doing it that aren't worth it to me. Yeah, totally. So, you know, you mentioned how you feel, and I think I agree with you that at least maybe society or like there's social ideas that like to be successful, you have to commit to something 100%. Uh, do you think that's a result of like social media, just like the image of big artists and what we think we have to do to be successful is is that artist who commits all of their time to that one craft like where do you think that idea stems from i don't know i mean i think it it probably has more to do with the way that people make money and make a living in something and also the idea that for it to be serious it needs to be connected to money and money sufficient to live on yeah and I think that we also, I think that the, the the kind of cult of a certain sort of expertise precedes social media, but I think it's intensified on social media that you're supposed to brand yourself in a certain way yeah. and, and, and make one thing kind of the entirety of who you are and like just sort of push that message out again and again and again. And that's like I, that kind of reality or that sort of expectation is part of what I wanted to play with with this project where I was like well this is just a different part of myself than the rest of me maybe and so I'm just going to give it its own identity and yeah. it, that can be a hundred percent of that thing's identity and then I don't need to to like play that game of branding in quite yeah. the same way yeah I like that so I don't know quite what the what the antecedent of it is but I, I think you're right that's part of it and whatever it is I think it's a real way people think and they want to know that what they're consuming comes from a serious and meaningful place but there's a lot of ways to signal that to somebody or there's only there's a lot of ways for that to be true but there's maybe only so many ways to signal that to somebody who's not gonna like 
spend a long time getting to know who you are or who your project is. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, I like what you said about, you know, using a project like Corntooth as a way to like contain just a part of yourself or like a part of your identity. And I think it's probably fair to say that even within that project, you can contain multiple sides or interest of yours. Like I'm thinking about the difference between your different albums, you know, like the desert is paper thin compared to your most recent album or like sound like, you know, it's the same artist, but there's two totally different ideas and settings and inspirations behind those projects. Yeah. Um, which I yeah. think is really cool because you get to experiment and explore. Can you kind of speak to that? Like what, how your mindset is going into like creating a new album when it comes to, it seems like you have a cohesive idea, at least through the first three albums that you've put out as Quarantooth. Where, where do those kind of ideas stem from and how do they relate to each other or differ from each other? I think you're you are totally right that that's one of the things I really like about how the project is structured is that there's a kind of freedom to play with different ideas and they cannot kind of all be equally legitimate if you know enough about the, the central artist. And yeah, but I because I just think that's true of everybody, like everybody's got a lot of interests. And then it's just like how audiences respond to them that limits what artists can do in some ways, like you expect one thing and then you think an artist is one way and then you kind of push that on them. For me, like the first record I made music to work to That was just, since that was the first ambient record I made, I had for a while been in a band where songwriting was a really intense process for us and we loved it, but it was a lot of working by committee to sort of try and agree on what we thought the best way to make a song was, really spending a long time trying to get the structures of songs right, and, and doing really important songwriting work that I think different styles call for, but I was a little burnt out on it. And what I really wanted to do was just play and to try and, you know, that thing where you, we call it demoitis in my old band, where you, you have this sort of um, magic in the first time you play something that then when you record it again and again and try and get a perfect performance, you lose. Yeah. I really wanted to just have that. And I was often the voice in my old band who like pushed us away from that towards more polished versions, but I didn't want to do that with this. And so I got the synthesizer from my friend Tony and who runs a really amazing store called Analog Craftsman. And they're now they're on the West Coast and they're worth checking out. I got the synthesizer though, the DX7 from him. And I just enjoyed playing it so much and all of the sounds were so surprising and fun to me. Mm -hmm. And they, it really felt like a partnership with the machine because it suggests so many ideas in the way the sounds are built. And so I was, I just wanted to play and make something, but I didn't know what. And so I spent three nights improvising with it. 
and didn't really try and refine my takes, didn't play things twice. I just sort of improvised. And most of the tracks were, you know, 10 to 20 minutes long of just noodling around. And then I would edit them down to, you know, one to two minute things. The best, the best moments sort of pushed together and, and try and build more of the structure from editing rather than from pre-writing planning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what I thought is, well, this is really a record about being in a flow state, which is also my friend had a newsletter called flowstate.fm, which is an amazing ambient music newsletter that comes out every day. And it's really all kinds of experimental music. But he had this thing that was meant basically to accompany you for two hours of working every day. And I thought, well, that's kind of this music would be good to work to because it's sort of it comes from a pure creative place. And that's the kind of place you aspire to be in when you're working that kind of flow state. And so I thought I'll call music to work to. And I asked my friend if he'd put it out. And he sort of created this record label, Flow State Records, that has put out a couple of cool ambient releases, both from Corntooth and a great band called Seconds that put out a first album called Landers um, and Davi Music uh, and some other stuff coming down the pike. Cool. Well, so yeah, so that was kind of what I what I loved about that was the ease and freedom of it. And I didn't want to lose that. But I also knew that there were some things from my previous songwriting that I wasn't really using anymore. Like I wasn't playing to a metronome. I wasn't being really thoughtful about the rhythms I was using or the parts. And I had totally abandoned the lexicon of Americana and roots music, which had been really the world that I lived in before. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to bring that back into it. And it was January of the next year and it was really cold and it was the pandemic still and we were sort of cooped up in the apartment and i watched paris texas with my girlfriend the film with the amazing ry cooter score the vim vendors film and felt afterwards i had known I, I think i i had a few ideas sort of for what kind of concept i wanted to work on with my second record i'd played with this pedal steel player pete finney uh, in my old band whom i i really loved um I'd, I'd met him sort of totally by chance in Nashville when I heard yeah. him playing pedal steel in his apartment. And I like, it was so beautiful. I went over and knocked on the door and that's how we connected. But I knew I wanted to work with a pedal steel player in some way. Cause a lot of ambient that I love has pedal steel on it. Like Chuck Johnson is an artist I really admire who is almost entirely pedal steel. And then I watched Paris, Texas when we were sort of in the doldrums of winter during the pandemic. And it's got these beautiful shots of, you know, desert travel in the Southwest. Yeah. And that inspired me to right after finishing that movie to start recording with an acoustic guitar. And that was we watched it. It's long. We finished at like 1 a.m. And I think from like 1 to 4 a.m. that night or something, I just was improvising with the acoustic guitar and coming up with some of the first songs that became part of the desert is paper thin. And I think the first one I wrote was D zero zero three.
was right after watching that movie. And so then I was kind of like, okay, this is a road trip record. And I live, as you can hear from this interview, in a really noisy place. And this is the room that I record in. And I was like, okay, so there's going to be noise in this whole thing if I'm using a microphone with acoustic guitars. Yeah. And the noises suggest times of day. And so I should only record a song at a time of day that the song is set. Just because if you, you know, you if you hear a sort of lone car passing, you know, on a rainy night, you can kind of feel that it's in the evening. And you even though that's not the scene that the song is about, you kind of have a time of day from those places. Like you don't hear dogs barking or like kids talking in the late evening. You hear that in the morning. And so I, I wanted to sort of set rules for myself about when I'd make certain kinds of songs. And so I was like, okay, well, then there's going to be time passing over the course of this record. So maybe it's, and I I felt pretty lonely at that point because of the pandemic. And I thought maybe it's one guy or girl driving across the desert and it's 24 hours in this drive. And that's sort of how I structured making those songs. I recorded all the acoustics and synth stuff. And then I sent it to Pete Finney. And he recorded, you know, four tracks. He's this natural-based pedal steel session player. Mm-hmm. And he recorded four tracks or so per song. And then I would just edit it from those, a pedal steel set of performances that seemed like they fit the songs. And then I went back and added more synth and edited more, cut some songs. And yeah. that was that record. You know, you want to hear something cool? Please. Uh, well, I just love hearing the whole backstory to that to that record because that is essentially what you were going for is how I discovered your music. I was just over the summer, I was doing a lot of traveling in the Southwest, like mostly Whoa. Arizona and a little bit of Utah as well. And I think at one point I was just like looking for some music to drive to and, and I was searching like Western instrumental music or something and i somehow you know just through the ether of spotify discovery um on some playlist i think uh c001 popped up somewhere and i was like okay looks weird i'm gonna try it (laughs) and then that led me to the whole album and i was just like lost in it and it was perfect uh for my travels so uh that makes me really happy that you found it in in that way that it's intended that's awesome yeah really cool why were you traveling around the southwest uh so i work for a travel guide company oh cool yeah we're like developing some tours uh for that region like some of the national parks and stuff sweet that sounds like a sweet job yeah yeah it's really cool i get to be home work from home like 95 percent of the time and then do a bit of traveling so it's it's pretty sweet the dream it's, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, well, that that's really cool. Yeah, and I'm I'm a huge fan of that that album in general. So let's take it home. So what's the transition to Letters to My Robot Son? I'm trying to remember how it started. Well, I think the way it started is I was one of the places these ideas come from for me is really the equipment. And which is a sad thing to say because, or it's, it could be a sad thing to say. I I think the idea that you buy something and that that's how you get ideas is depressing, but I'm also 
really fixated on these weird old keyboards because a lot of them were toys when they came out and people didn't really take them seriously. But each one sort of has its own idea or represents a set of ideas that the creators had about how creativity worked, what sorts of tools a modern songwriter would want. Yeah. And, and, and so there, but this is before the world we live in now where everything UX is best practices and everyone knows exactly how to make a thing that will work intuitively. So a lot of these things just, they work badly or they work in weird ways or they're really hard to program, but the difficulty and the sort of obtuseness of some of these tools, I find really productive creatively because there's a puzzle to solve or there's something unexpected that gets thrown back at you in a way. Yeah. And so I felt like that's what the DX7 gave me in the first album was just some curiosity and something to chase. And then that's how I felt about recording with the acoustic guitar, but also just with the pedal steel and having the surprise of what Pete, you know, what, what Pete was putting out to respond to still with the DX seven. And so I was sort of looking around for what's a new thing. This is one, something that happened to me when I was younger is I was trying to buy a guitar and I was in this music shop. Sorry, this is kind of jumping around, but this is, um, I, I really wanted, I was, this was when I was in the folk rock band, which of course I'm still in, but we're not playing that often. And I needed an acoustic electric guitar and they had this Taylor mini GS that I spent, you know, a half hour, 40 minutes playing just cause I love playing it so much. It had this sort of punchy parlor acoustic sound, but it's a small guitar and it's not as loud as a bigger acoustic electric when you crank it up, it has the problem of generating a lot of feedback sometimes. Right. And so there's these bigger, more dreadnought size um, Taylor acoustic electrics that were roughly the same price range where I was like, okay, this is a smarter, more versatile decision. And so I I played that guitar for, you know, five, ten minutes. And I was like, I should probably get this one. It accomplishes more what I need to get done with this thing. And so I went to the counter to tell the guy I was going to buy this guitar and sort of ask his advice, but also just saying this is what I thought I should do. And he was like, what are you what are you doing? You know, you were playing the mini GS for like 40 minutes and you play that guitar for five minutes. You should buy the guitar that makes you feel more musical. And it it was such good advice because there are certain things and and people and places it kind of becomes advice for everything in your life that make you feel more musical that you just want to intuitively spend time in or invest in and it's not just a gear thing but i think it is true of musical gear And so I was sort of poking around thinking, what's, what is a thing that I'm just going to really enjoy playing? And I heard this record, Pieces from a Small Corner of Paradise, uh, which is a record by a composer named Benjamin Brunn. And it's the concept of the album is it's all sequences made on a Korg Poly 800 Mark II, which is a 1985 analog synthesizer with a really beautiful onboard delay effect gotcha. and 
Um, I the DX is my you know probably my favorite instrument, but it doesn't have a sequencer, and I was sort of interested in in trying to work with sequences more because that's the thing that I hadn't done on my other records, and I I like to have a new challenge on each one. Yeah, and so I thought, well, and this was similar to the DX I got. It was kind of like it's cheap in a certain kind of way, and I tend to do like a one in one out rule, so I get rid of something and then I I get something else with that. I was like, okay, maybe I can build something around those sounds. And when I got it, it came with a data tape, which is a magnetic tape cassette from the 1980s that uh, sounds sort of like a, a old dial-up modem. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's the way credit card information used to be transmitted. It was like, you know, you'd have a magnetic tape on the back of your card. That's what the swipe was. It would send a series of sounds over whatever phone system that would communicate to a computer what information was on the card. And that's how this data tape worked with uh, the synthesizer, where you would play it into the synth, and that would communicate to the synth how to sort of scramble its parameters to fit whatever was on the data tape. Very cool. And I thought that was cool because I was like, this is a musical way of communicating digital information, and it's, it's, it's its own kind of sequencer. And then I think from there and, you know, reading about various constant global crises, I was thinking about sort of the end of the world and as one does, as one does. And I was and I was thinking about this data tape and and I thought about this idea of a, a father in the future who sort of in a children of men type world um, has a robot son. Mm-hmm. and wants to leave behind a body of knowledge for this kid in the hopes that, you know, when all the people are gone, this robot child will have something approximating human consciousness and the ability to appreciate all the things that people so love about the world that in a really sad outcome they would no longer be able to. And so that was the idea for it, and I wanted it to be a set of sequencer-based modules that moved from tighter, more orderly stuff to rangier, weirder, less structured stuff to kind of represent one trajectory of moving from a robot consciousness to human consciousness. And it's a really corny, silly idea, but I liked that silliness and and goofiness of it in the old sci-fi way because that's kind of how the synth sounds to me. Yeah. Um, And so that that was the idea for that record. That's that's super cool. I'm a I'm a sci-fi fan, so I really dig it. Yeah. No. What kind of sci-fi do you like? Um, I, I'm all over. I mean, I've more recently read all the Dune series. Um, oh wow, Frank I Herbert. That's awesome. And I loved the Ender's Game series. Yeah, as, me too. When I was a little younger, I recently read some of uh, Ray Bradbury's like short stories. Yeah. Or the Illustrated Man, I think was the one. Oh, cool! Yeah, yeah. yeah. And really honestly, cool. like as you were describing the concept, I was thinking of those stories a bit. So that that's really cool. Yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah, and I love the idea of music as an archive, music as like a way to immortalize ideas or feelings or stories yeah. if if there's words or it doesn't even need words to to immortalize stories but i just love that concept that that's really cool 
I do too. And you know, like the Voyager Gold Record, the the records they sent out into space with the Voyager yeah. spacecraft in the 70s, I think. That, you know, there's a lot of music on those things. And there's yeah. something about music as an art form that you think might plausibly communicate with people who wouldn't have our language. So I totally agree with you. And I love that idea too. Very cool. Well, th- well, this kind of transitions nicely into what I refer to as sort of the big question of the podcast, which you've definitely sort of hit on some of ideas that relate to this already. But the thing that I always ask every guest is, why do you make music? Which is very vague uh, intentionally, because you could take that a bunch of different ways. But for you... You've touched on a few things like having that feeling of play, exploring, experimenting sounds, even what we just talked about, like leaving something behind. Um, All of these are are ideas, but if you had to kind of answer with one thing, what's the reason you're making music? I I think you maybe just did a better job than I will do um, of sort of drawing out the main themes for me. I, I mean... The stupid and true answer is that this is the form that has been closest to my heart since I was a kid. And it's meant a lot to me to hear music from other people. And so that's what I want to give back. I think that, and I just really enjoy making music. And that's the main thing. That maybe ties into the way that one of the ways that I think about ambient music, because it's really, it's sort of a messy term. Ambient music usually, to a lot of people, connotes droney things, no melody, no real rhythm or structure. And that's not the kind of music that I make or want to make. But what's true of ambient music that I think I I aspire to in my music is this thing. uh, Someone once said of Evie White, the essayist, that he's, the most companionable writer. And I think what I want to do is make companionable music that is, you know, music that is a good partner to whatever it is that a listener is going through. Or even if what they're going through is just wanting to have a nice walk or a nice day at work. Sort of music that can accommodate a lot of different levels of listening and emotional involvement. Uh, That's the end product that I want to make but the reason that I make it is because music's meant a lot to me and I really love to play music myself yeah perfect that that's a great answer you started by you prefaced it with stupid and honest which is the best way (laughs) to answer most questions in my opinion I think that's true so love it final kind of fun question to end on maybe is what is the last time a piece of music, whether recorded or heard live, gave you the chills? So I would, I think the last time that I remember a piece of music giving me the chills is Mark McGuire uh, Brothers. I think it's Brothers, and then the parentheses, there's like a, he's, it's for his brother. I think it's Brothers for Matt. Um, it's off his album Living With Yourself. He's this great guitarist. And it's sort of in the vein I'm talking about. Is it really ambient? Not really. But he's sort of in that world. It's in- instrumental music. But 
it starts with this beautiful piece of field tape of um, him, I think, as a kid talking with his older brother and this sort of light guitar in the background. And there's this beautiful point at which the conversation between the brothers cuts off in this very sweet moment. And then the band, the, like a fuller version of the music kicks in. Yeah. That gave me chills for sure. So that is that is one. Um, I would say also, chronologically, I'm not sure which of these came first, but the album Neighborhoods by Ernest Hood is this gorgeous, weird record made in the 70s. I actually think up near you. I think in Oregon. Yeah. Um, by do you know do you know the album? No, I'm gonna look it up. It, it was I. I'm gonna butcher this story, but I I believe Ernest Hood was a jazz musician in the 50s who lost mobility in some way and then um i think he was a guitarist but he started playing the zither and the synthesizer and he moved to this small community i think in oregon and made this gorgeous record called neighborhoods that weaves a lot of field tape from the 70s in with the zither and the synthesizer and some of it is just so spooky and beautiful it reminds me of the score to to kill a mockingbird the film and that album 100% gave me chills. So I, th- these are two maybe slightly contemporaneous answers. I don't remember which is first, but one of them is the last time for sure. Perfect. Very cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. I like the zither synthesizer combo. Yeah, it's great. Sounds it's, very it's, intriguing. It's, yeah. I mean, know what you think of it. I'd like, I, I hope you like it. I will. Cool. Well, uh, we'll kind of wrap up the interview now. Uh, last couple things. I always ask if you've got another band, musician, or or musically creative person that you think I could check out their work and potentially talk to in the future, maybe as a future guest, or just somebody I should check out. Um, I mean, I would be really curious to hear an interview with Mark McGuire if that, yeah. if that worked out. So he seems pretty cool. Cool. I'll, I'll look into it. And then... As far as where people can find your music, obviously you're on Spotify at Corntooth. I know you've got Bandcamp page, Corntooth, where everyone can buy your albums. And Corntooth with a with a U. Crucially. Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, it will be spelled in the episode, so hopefully okay, cool. <laughs> if they just look down, they'll see that. Yeah, okay, and, great. Uh, we'll link all of your you know pages and social media things in the show notes, so make it real easy for people to find. Awesome. Oh. I actually, I think I might want to change my answer about someone you might want to check out and talk to. Um, Please. Because I'm remembering now that this is not only an ambient music show. So do you know MJ Lenderman? No. Do you like Magnolia Electric Company or know that band, know that um, that album, Songs Ohio, the, those guys, Jason Molina's thing? Not familiar. Um, I would really recommend that if you like Roots and Americana at all. But this okay. guy, MJ, MJ Lenderman, to me is sort of like, he reminds me a lot of Jason Molina. It's the letter is MJ space and then Lenderman, L-E-N-D-E-R-M-A-N. Okay. He's got a new album called Boat Songs that I really loved. And he's sort of up and coming in a cool way. And I think he would be a great person to talk to. Him or Mark McGuire would be great. Hell yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, I appreciate it. I will definitely... Half the reason I also do this podcast is just to selfishly find more music to listen to. So yeah, I'm, 
I'm curious to know more about sort of why you do the podcast and what it what the experience is like for you. Yeah, I guess it's it's a lot of things. Of course, a lot of the reasons I like doing the podcast are the same reasons I like making music. Um, you know, it's it's playing with conversation and especially talking about music, which is something I love. It's just enjoyable to like discuss and as I just said to like explore and discover new things I always was like kind of afraid of becoming like one of those old people who like just only listens to the same thing over and over again whatever they you know whatever they were listening to when they were teenagers they just never give up on and and never stop or they stop exploring I'd like to never stop exploring you know yeah totally different genres and and new artists and old artists alike so selfishly, there's a lot of, yeah, reasons like that of just wanting to explore and discover music. And then also uh, just like connecting with new people. I like to talk to people and I work from home and I have been working from home even before the pandemic. I was sort of like ever since the end of college, I finished college in 18. And ever since then, I've been a little more isolated so the podcast started like soon after that and i don't think that was a coincidence i think i was sort of just craving more contact and then i guess the last thing would just be that the main sort of that big question i asked of like why are you making music maybe is like if i can get a bunch of people to answer that question and and share their thoughts and other people listen to it then it's gonna hopefully keep inspiring people to to keep doing it yeah much like music discovery i feel you see you learn about a lot of people older or later in life who maybe used to play an instrument and maybe gave up on it or stopped because Mm -hmm. life gets too busy or whatever but maybe if we all keep reminding ourselves why we're doing it then it'll be a good motivation to keep doing it yeah that seems like a great reason and yeah. I, yeah, the way you structure this, I can see you really doing that for people. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate you asking. I don't think anyone's actually asked that explicitly. So it's it's cool to kind of take a step back and discuss that for a second. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, it's just like, a, it's a cool thing to do and it takes so much work to keep running. So I really respect that you do. Yeah, and I appreciate you being a guest today. This is, it is going to be our first episode in a while there was a hiatus as he said it is a bit of work to keep doing and and it's ebbed and flow since i started it a couple years ago but this will be the first one in a while and i'm really happy to be getting back into it and sure. uh, kicking things back off with you as a guest i'm really honored to be on it cool yeah hell yeah well awesome keep making cool shit keep doing your thing i always end with a high five which is virtual. Okay. So I'll count down from three and then we'll both high five. Okay. Okay. Three, two, one. Oh, wait, let's try again. Three, two, one. Great. <laughs> I'll fix it in post. Don't yeah. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> cool. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll talk more soon. All right. Thanks a lot, Andrew. I really appreciate it.
Hello, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sound for Thought. I know there are a bazillion podcasts out there, and the fact that you picked this one today means a lot to me. If you enjoyed it, please check out some other episodes and discover some more new music. And if you've got even more extra time on your hands, go ahead and subscribe or give us a follow on social media to keep up with new content. Thanks again to Corntooth for coming on the show. He was a fantastic guest. Uh, give him a follow, Corntooth, on social media or find his music on any of the streaming platforms or better yet, purchase his albums on Bandcamp. The latest one is Letters to My Robot Son. Thanks as always to Aiden Danzi, the Judd Zingle Project, for our theme music and the backing tracks during the intro and outro. Follow our whole team on Instagram, at Redefining Records, to keep up with this show and the other podcasts we make, and get new music recommendations every Friday. It's really fun. We each post a song that we've been digging, and we recommend it to you on Instagram stories. Thanks again. Hope you discovered something you enjoyed today. Until next time, adios. This has been a Redefining Records production. 